Uh, hello, all. Sort of all. Hello. I see three anyway. Hello, Matthew. Hi. How are you doing? Oh my goodness! I'm finally we, meeting we you meet. virtually. Yes. Oh my goodness! You do look like your photo. You're looking splendid. <laughs> well, so do you, except you haven't got your your big hair. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> and Harold was there a minute ago. Yeah, I can see him. Hello. Yeah, Lovely hey. to see you. Meet Whoa. you virtually, at least finally. Yes. And Sophie, I think I might have met you in England. Was it Cambridge at a, at a conference? Oh exactly, yes, yeah. I remember you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate Smell Edition. Now, smell is arguably the most used, most complex, least noticed of our senses. We think we know what scents we love and those we loathe, but our reaction to one invisible molecule can sometimes be pleasure, sometimes reverie, sometimes repulsion. But as our knowledge rapidly expands, have we begun to understand how powerful our sense of smell really is? How much can smell tell us about what it means to be human, about how we experience joy and sadness, memory and loss? No wonder artists have woken up to using scent in their practice, but can something as literally ethereal as scent have a permanent place in the art museum? And how might a new understanding of scent change how we understand our world? To sniff out an answer to those questions and more, I see on the screen 10 exceptional nostrils at the ready. Two each belong to A.S. Barwich, who's a philosopher, neuroscientist and poet, whose latest book is called Smellosophy. Harold McGee is the creator of Nosedive, yet another book to be waved around, the one and only field guide to the world's smells. Maeve Curtin is a chemist and perfumer with smell giant international fragrance and flavour. Matthew Cobb is a zoologist specialising in smell. And Elisa Cohen is an artist whose practice encompasses scent. And we're all here to talk about football. No, not really. In reality, it's smell that has us all zooming together. So we have a moving image of where you're all sitting right now. But to help us get a more complete picture, can you evoke for us, tell us about the scent of the place in which you are currently sitting? Harold, would you lead us off on this field trip? <laughs> Well, um, not a whole lot of scent here. I'm, I'm sitting in an office uh, with the doors closed to keep things quiet. If I stuck my nose right into my, the keyboard of my laptop, I would get some circuit board smells. But that's about it for the moment. Mm. Maeve McCurtain, I, I can see there's a lot of things surrounding you there. What smell surrounds you in Ennis today? Luke, I have the smell of um, a cup of tea, which is next to me, and um, the blankets which are surrounding me to make this nice soundproof Bedouin tent. And on the blankets, I think, as with everything I have, it's always covered with different perfumes that I'm working on. Um, so that's the smells I have now. I'm trapped in my own fragrances. Alisa, what's the smell of Los Angeles this morning? I'm in Altadena, actually, which is just northeast of Los Angeles. And it's quite like this very cold breezy smell that comes from the mountains and it's new to me so it's quite strong i'm not looking forward to getting used to it because i won't smell it the same way so i can still i can smell that in the house still which is nice matthew in manchester how's the smell well i'm uh, i'm in my daughter's bedroom uh, i've thrown her out and i can smell her scog calm of the boreal forest um sticks that she puts in there so other smelling sticks are available but it's really quite nice it's kind of it's got a bit of green in it and a bit piney and a little bit of smoke and mm, it's nice 
So maybe resembles a little bit the wind coming down off, off the woods to Elisa there. And Sophie Bowich, what are you smelling there? Where are you? I am in Bloomington, which sounds very smelly in terms of bloom, Bloomington and flowers, but uh, right now it's winter, so you don't have that much. That being said, I'm surrounded by cold coffee. I have about three or four mugs of cold coffee because I'm always doing a coffee. I'm starting to write. I'm forgetting that I made a coffee. And so they're kind of piling up. And otherwise, it's a lot of plants here because I, I started to discover my green thumb during this year, but not as tropical and exciting as Matthew's place. You suggest in your book that you take one of the one thing that we know about smell, which is a rose by any name other name would smell as sweet, and you you immediately debunk that idea. What what are you getting at there when you say a rose by any other name would possibly not smell as sweet? Well, one thing is that we often confuse the labels with the actual perception. And uh, quite often we think that smell is just one thing. But as any perfumer, I mean, we're having, of course, uh, people here, you know this better than I do, know that any smell has multiple qualities. And it's so much information that we can't possibly process all at once. So having another label, having another name, having just another association, you could say focuses our brain on different parts of the signals processing. So you really are getting different qualities. And that's what people often mistake for subjectivity. It's not subjectivity, it's plurality. But you do also suggest that there are very personal, there are very subjective levels to, to what's going on. They are very personal when it comes to the fact that it's not just that you're detecting what's in the world. In the moment you're smelling, you're also having something, some information about yourself, whether you're hungry, whether you're excited, how you're feeling. So smell is nicely uh, a distal sense, but also an interoceptive sense. It gives you something about how you're feeling as well in the moment you're smelling. And that is kind of a negotiation between the world and yourself that I find makes smell a great model system to think about how we are within the world, so to speak. Matthew, there has been a long history of of ascribing a moral value to smells. That's something that seems to repeat in cultures all over the world. Yes, but what's striking is how much it varies. So there are different smells in different cultures are seen in different ways. And smells that we might find unpleasant, certain peoples would think were actually the kind of pinnacle of of smelling nice. So in general, what happens is that smells that are associated with ruling classes or particularly prestigious people are seen as being very pleasant. And those of others, and those others will change in time and space, are seen as being less pleasant. The smell is partly to do with the defining what what scientists would call the dimensionality of smell, being able to explain exactly what it is that causes the the sensation. And that's not like, say, sound or vision. It's much more like, I don't know, looking at two paintings. It's not just the components that are of colour that are making up. It's the overall uh, complex interactions that produce the image of it being a Titian or a Picasso or whatever. But we, we can see scent and smell de- sort of deployed in racist uh, discourse, and it's very kind of malleable to a, an ideological kind of bent. Yeah, absolutely. So Hitler said in Mein Kampf that the Jews smelt. Um, uh, Jacques Chirac, the French prime minister in 1992, made a notorious speech, well, it was notorious in France, which he complained about the, the noise and the smell of immigrants. But I think perhaps more strikingly is the example of the British Raj, where in India, 
their colonial Britons all complained that the Indians smelt terribly. And of course, the Indians all thought that the British stank and had really unpleasant smells. So both sides were using smell as a way of othering, as a way of distancing themselves from uh, another social group. Everybody's work today, Harold's book and Anne-Sophie's book and Matthew's book and the work of uh, both of the perfumers here, suggests that we're at a particular moment when there's a particular emphasis on smelling. And I mean, I guess Nosedive is, uh, Harold, a, a, one of the largest, chunkiest piece of evidence of that. What is taking place? What, what is this apparently developing fascination with scent? What's happening there? I think uh, it's in some ways simply a realization of something that's been there all along that we've kind of taken for granted and that we haven't delved into in the way we've delved into other things. This last 10 years or so reminds me of back in the 1970s when I started writing about the, the chemistry of food and cooking. Back then, people weren't that interested in food and cooking. And now look where we are. We just go through these phases where we take things for granted, then all of a sudden we look at something with fresh eyes or sniff at something with a more attentive nose and realize there's a, a whole world there to explore. And that's something that, that's made very evident in your book is this idea of attention and listening to smells and, and how mindful smelling might be. But Maeve Curtin, for somebody like you, your entire training has been the process that maybe Harold's book suggests is about to filter into a more general public. So it'd be great to get some idea of that. Tell us about uh, an education in perfume. How do you begin to develop your sense? Because I think one of the things that, that a lot of the work here suggests is that is possible for everyone. Oh, absolutely. I think um, one of the things I found really interesting about what Anne-Sophie was saying is the link between language and smell. And I really felt that when I was training, you know, the more that you develop a language around smell, the more you come to be able to name things, the more your perception of smell grows and the more you can describe it. And it's almost like your awareness increases and a whole world develops around that. And I think that's so interesting now. It's because you develop a sort of system where you can analyze things and break them down and pick them apart and remember them and tag them and store them in your memory. And it's almost like developing a sense where you can see more colours. You know, it's really nice. And I, I think um, in the training, the first place to start off would always be to learn all the different families, the older families. And there's a palette of about 2,000 ingredients. I would say about a third of those are natural materials. So extracts of flowers, of wood, of seeds, of plants. And then about two-thirds are synthetic materials. And some of those are nature identical, so they're like already what would be found in nature, but they're um, they're synthesized. So it would be like memorizing those scents and learning how to name them and describe them. And that's a big foundation. And once you've sort of like mastered that and you can speak about it, then you can start to use them and create basic accords. And and Sophie, what you discovered it is that that process can actually have physical effects on your brain, not just your personality, which we imagine that they would affect. Uh, there have been incredible studies showing to what extent smell training, like really intense targeted smell training, 20 minutes per day, which is cognitively quite straining, really thickens parts of your factory cortex and surrounding cortices in six weeks, which, it, which just shows how malleable and plastic uh, that part of the brain really is. 
And many people just think, well, you know, perfumers, they might have been born with some kind of superpowers or some weird genetic mutational effects. But uh, as May was saying, it really is a, a cognitive achievement. You are enhancing your perception, you're really broadening your perception, and even you could say expand the quality of your conscious experience by learning how to smell. And that is why, why I'm so excited about all the books that came out this year, because there was so much attention to smell based on the whole COVID anosmia and people realizing, oh, wow, we are indoors the whole time. Everything starts to get bland, sensorially bland, and people are looking for some kind of distraction. And I noticed that myself when I was uh, in, in, my, in my home and nothing was really happening. And I got a bit bored, I'll be honest. At some point, you get really, really bored. And my coffee was burning. And I was excited about that. My brain was suddenly in complete search mode. I've never been so excited about burnt coffee in my life. Elisa, how do you kind of register a difference between the preparation you've had to do as an artist in developing that kind of sense to those who kind of work inside the industry and are creating perfumes in a different way? Are you aware of a different approach to your own expansion of that uh, sense? Um, having a base in basic chemistry and perfumery has been important. And then beyond that, what I'm aware of is the understanding classifications to a degree that I can then sort of break them and break perception and break how the impact of, for example, like, I don't know, a middle note does not have to follow a top note. <laughs> what will happen if there's a series of 14, 15 top notes and how can I work with that in time has been something that I've, I've focused on lately. But I go, I toggle back and forth between more information and, and learning the basics and getting more and more information about how materials actually function in order to then play with them and break some of the rules. Harold, after a decade-long nosedive, have you decided whether uh, scent manipulation is an art or can be an art or is an art when practiced by perfumers or is an art when practiced by artists? And does it matter? Well, it, it does because it's um, sense, even though they're invisible, they're, they're materials. They're things that human beings can use to make other things, to have experiences. And so they're, I think, maybe more challenging to, to wrangle to make a particular impression. But I have certainly enjoyed the brief contact I've had with that aspect of the, the smell world. And I think, I think there's a lot there and I look forward to learning more. Because in your, your book, you're quite careful to talk about the elements that are there and, and maybe steer away from the intangible aspect of perfume. Well, yeah, I, I chose that strategy for the purposes of this book. I should say the book started out as a book about flavor and then turned into a book about the aroma of foods and then turned into a book about the aroma of everything I could think of. So it, it went through an evolution, and um, I chose to set aside what happens in us as we perceive things, because that is another book. That's Anne Sophie's book. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, there's a Western prejudice, perhaps, to see sight as the top sense and a kind of pyramid where scent comes down very low. Is that a particularly Western prejudice? Well, there is some aspect of, of truth to that in that if you get different peoples, uh, indigenous peoples may be able to respond to questioning more or demonstrate a greater acuity and awareness of their surroundings. I think overall, there are genetic differences between people which explain why some smells smell nice to some people and not to others. But overall, 
we are, you know, we're one species that's got this incredible ability, which then gets kind of funneled down and narrowed down. And in particular, in Western societies, uh, then our environment, in particular, pollution can play an enormous effect in limiting how richly we can smell. The way the world smells isn't the same to everybody. And that depending upon where you live in a particular country, then if you live in a very polluted area, it's much more difficult to sense things and to smell things because they're, they're dominating you. And in general, in English, we have very few words that are actually about smells themselves. And they're generally unpleasant ones like rank or fetid or dank. Virtually every way we have of describing a smell is to use another smell to say, well, it smells like whatever. Another exception would be green, which I used earlier on. So that kind of intangible smell of, of cut grass and so on. So me, what, what words in your head or out loud when you're laboring these thousands and thousands of different odors, and in, in particular, when you're imagining, now that I can't get my head around, how you can imagine a new perfume. I guess it's the same question to Elisa, who's playing jazz with her, her notes and breaking all the rules. How can you imagine a new smell. There's a lot of nodding heads there. Maeve, maybe you'd come in first. <laughs> For me, there's a difference when I'm describing a smell to imagining a new scent. I think if I'm imagining a new scent, it'd be a lot more of a synesthetic kind of experience. I might try to think about, you know, colours, textures, feelings. You know, you might draw inspiration from poetry, from a memory. But in terms of like describing smells, usually I would try, it's kind of an analytical process. Um, when I was studying, we had something called cities and streets. But I think, you know, there's a lot of equivalent systems where if you're smelling something and you want to try and work out what's in it, that you would sort of start off by, you know, is it um, spicy? Okay. And then you'd have like a branch, a tree branch that would come down. And you think, okay, is it spicy, rubber or not rubber? And then if it's rubber, then maybe it's nutmeg. If it's not rubber, you might go towards pepper. And you have these sort of branches and it's the same with the florals you know you can say like is it floral rose floral mugave you know you kind of try to decide which floral it is and if you decide it's rose floral you say is it petally or is it waxy and then if it's waxy maybe it's an absolute and if it's petally maybe it's a synthetic molecule called phenylethyl alcohol so you sort of like develop these um, branches and then for memorizing them myself I would kind of personalize them and then I'd give myself like free range to describe then if it, you know because if you really want to remember it I just associate it with a memory or even if it's something that doesn't make sense to anybody else you know I might say it smells metallic or it smells scratchy or it smells heavy or it smells cloying you know I'd use whatever words that are really make sense to me because that's just my own personal database and I'll remember that and if I w later on want to make a scent that smells like something really abstract I'll have all that abstract reference myself. And Sophie how does what uh, Maeve's saying there do you see a resemblance of that structure she's talking about in the neurology? Well, let's put it that way. It sounds very familiar, especially with the link to database, like building a personal database, a relational database to the world, because what you're doing is really you're forming an associative memory. And many of the effects that we are observing that used to people, like use, people used to think, oh, that's why smell subjective is precisely what May was describing as this is the way you, you learn how to associate and categorize smells, because you often have a smell quality, but the quality is not yet the label, it's not yet the mental image, because many smells um, can occur in so many different contexts, and many odorants, many, many smelly molecules can come from so many different sources, so that you have to have often another cue in order to relate it to something that is uh, conceptually meaningful to you. So you can have a promiscuous stimulus coming from so many different things, and what the brain does is basically, when you look at the signals of, of olfactory signals in the brain, they fan out. It's beautiful. 
beautiful, their fan art is chaotic, there is no obvious clear categorization. And that's the open question in olfactory science right now. How does the brain categorize that kind of input into some kind of qualitative brackets or some kind of organization? And a lot of it is association, top-down influences, experience, context, all these kind of things. So it plays in with your previous experience, how you learn to uh, associate certain things. And that brings it back also to what May said earlier. When you learn certain categorizations, what you're also learning is to hone in and to sort out in a complex mixture particular parts and pieces so that you can both switch between the overall mixture and then particular qualitative notes and if you've got the language you certainly if you've got the word certainly your brain can focus on that so it's a lot about association and that you can see nicely actually for instance uh, also with the organization of, of how olfactory signals are distributed and really widely distributed in the olfactory cortex. All of those things that we're describing there are about a sort of an expansion of consciousness and maybe a reveling in pleasure but this interest in in scent has also expanded in less pleasant directions. And I think, Elisa, this is where your work on skunk has come in, because at the same time as perfumers and winemakers are, are expanding our knowledge of scent, there's another dimension where this uh, increased interest begins to have a, a maybe, I would say, a dark side. But I wonder what the what the scent equivalent for a dark side would be. Yeah, I I don't think about it so much as dark, but I do think about it as violence. And of course, there is a darkness in that. But there's also a pervasiveness and a, and, a, and a sort of a call to understand the impact that the weaponizing of smell can have. And that happens, that's happened acro- across class lines, which we've talked about a little bit in many cultures. But it's also happening as, um, in, in terms of weaponry and, and what is classified as non-lethal weapons. So skunk is considered a non-lethal weapon, and at the same time we're now understanding and talking about how much smell impacts us. So skunk is a weapon that is used, still used in Palestine to dispel, what, what Israelis would say is to dispel crowds from gathering, from protesting. But really what its use has been is to mark Palestinians and to create an environment for them to be more humiliating and just to deepen the level of colonialization in the air. It started in 2012, I believe. So what we've seen over the last eight years is this way of, on the one hand, selling this weapon to the world and saying, look how, look how nonviolent we are. And, and on the other hand, creating a situation in which Palestinians are literally um, made to smell like shit. And skunk is the, the term that Israelis have used and Palestinians will call it shit water instead, um, because that's what it smells like. Have you seen this being used uh, elsewhere? It was um, purchased in Ferguson, but not used. Different governments in India have purchased it also, depending on people's reactions, on groups' reactions to it. It's not, it's differently impactful. The impact that it has in Palestine is that it's being used over and over and over again, and that the villages are quite small and contained. And so over time, it gets into clothes, it gets into homes, it gets into furniture, and it's just impossible to wash off people's bodies and people's belongings. Um, So it's never been used this way. But I I don't think it will have the same kind of effect elsewhere, but that's that's sort of a different topic. (laughs) There's been a less systematic use of a similar kind of approach in France on the other side of the kind of conflict with the state in that uh, French small farmers regularly end up having big standoffs with the police and their regular tactic is to bring along a big wagon of slurry 
and then to spray it all over the riot police who then not only get very wet, but also it impregnates in exactly the same way as Elisa has been describing every fiber of their being. And they're generally not very happy about it. Well, I mean, I think, Elisa, that is the effect that that's sought in, in a weapon like skunk. Yeah, absolutely. That's the point of it. I mean, it's it's very much about marking a group of people to to smell like animals. And at the same time, to show the world that it's it's somehow benevolent or somehow just keeping things natural, like the the entire um, propaganda, I would say, or the marketing of skunk is about all natural ingredients. So it's yeast yeast based. I've looked into to recreating it as well and to try to understand what the composition is. And because it's yeast based, it's it's bacterial and changing all the time. And that in itself is very interesting in terms of, st- of of controlling a group of people. This particular moment when scent has a kind of centre stage, what the actual positive benefits of that are, maybe it um, makes uh, people able to sell armaments of one sort or another, but I also wonder you know, what it means to our own subjectivity, to our own sense of the world in which we're moving. And that makes me think I should ask Anne-Sophie. Have you a sense of how this elevated attention to smell is affecting us? So one way in which I would answer that, because there's lots to unpack here, uh, and one way which I would really say is that we shouldn't forget to what extent we are driven to explore in a certain way. And one reason, for instance, why we're often not aware of our surroundings in terms of the smell of our surroundings is because we're habituate, the receptors habituate, uh, they adapt to to smells at different at different rates, and then also the brain at some point like, okay, this is kind of the normal environment. And the reason for that, while you're only getting aware of new things uh, or this kind of, there's some kind of slight chemical change in environment is because otherwise you'd beg for a lobotomy. Imagine you've got hundreds of molecules that are constantly surrounding you. If your receptors were constantly firing, your brain, your consciousness would be overloaded. You couldn't focus on anything else. So in a certain way, I like to compare the sense of smell and the kind of curiosity that smell evokes in good and bad ways. And and one way to think about that is like bipedalism. We freed our hands when we when we stop walking on all fours and we could use tools. We could think about tool use with hands, etc. In a certain way, it's like also through bipedalism, we also lifted our noses from the ground. So we're not constantly like dogs aware of everything that's on the ground because, I mean, smells are usually on the ground, on surfaces. And that means we can sometimes just take a break from being constantly overwhelmed by this sensory input. Uh, so I think there's something interesting about smell that it constantly flips in and out of conscious awareness. And in a certain way, our evolution um, helped us through bipedalism uh, and the culture evolution of like, well, we, we created certain sensory stimuli, food, perfume, wine, all these kind of things to trigger our curiosity, but we can also distance ourselves from it because it is, unlike dogs who are constantly surrounded by it, we can take a break. I think the other thing uh, is what Anne-Sophie mentioned earlier on is a bit more serious, and that's the COVID outbreak, which has focused uh, medical minds on something that they haven't been interested in, which is anosmia, when you lose your sense of smell and thereby sense of taste, but also parosmia, where you start to smell weird things that you've never smelt before and aren't there. And in the past, last year, if you went to your your physician, they just say, well, there's nothing you can do about it, you know, go away. Now, there's still not much you can do about it, but at least you'll 
get some attention. I mean, I just this morning, I got an email from a student, a random student said, hello, I'm a biochemistry student in the first year. I know you know about smell. I've got this parosmia. I can smell horrible things all the time when I eat. What can I do? Uh, and she got COVID. And I think that's the short answer is you have to wait and hope it gets better. But there may be smell training and so on. So I think there's, there's a conjunction of one, there's a, a kind of academic and cultural interest from all of us here. But the the pandemic has focused a lot of attention on what these phenomena are and highlighted our very poor understanding of the underlying processes because for example it's not our sensory neurons that are affected by the virus it can't get in there it's the cells next door and how exactly they're producing the virus produces the effects it does which it can be very dramatic we don't understand the simplest explanation for parosmia smelling something that's not there would be like a chord if you imagine a chord on a piano and one of those fingers is now either playing a different a different note or is absent then you get a different perhaps a sound you've never heard before so one thing I would say quite seriously to to listeners if you've got this problem there are groups that can help you and you may be able to get some relief from what can be a very distressing condition. I think it's very good to imagine that at this moment when we're all particularly interested in in scent that perhaps more people in the world than ever are suffering from both anosmia and the paranosmia you're talking about which is somehow excluding them from from this conversation but but maybe not from the various books that have been written by our guests. With that final whiff that's all we have time for on this month's Culture File Debate. Thanks to all our guests, A.S. Barwich, uh, Harold McGee, Maeve McCurtain, Matthew Cobb and Elisa Cohen. We'll be back with another debate next month. Meantime, don't forget the podcast-only version of this week's Culture Files featuring Harold McGee in full force is available to download now. Till next time, bye now. Thank you, Luke. Bye-bye. Have a lovely day. Okay, stay safe, bye. everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye.